Genesis 3 brings to a close the story of Adam and Eve. Its final verses present us with that memorable scene of God driving out the first couple from the verdant garden to live a life east of Eden as displaced people, really as refugees from the garden for which they were created. And it's clear that there's no turning back from Adam, for Adam and Eve. At the entrance uh, of the garden, God places an angel with a sword, a flaming sword, preventing Adam and Eve's re-entrance into that garden paradise. But there's life after the fall. In the opening lines of Genesis 4, we read that Eve conceives and bears a son named Cain, and soon after, another named Abel. Following them are a number of other generations that bring us all the way to the sons of Noah in Genesis 10. For many of us, the figures from these early chapters of Genesis are less well-known than Adam and Eve. And this is not without good reason. In these pages, we encounter lengthy genealogies of who begat who, and I know you all skip them. I skip them when I read the Old Testament. Uh, and we also encounter strange tales of figures like the Nephilim, these giants of old. And it's just hard to know what to do with these pages of Scripture. So if you're in one of those read-through-the-Bible-a-year programs, and I've started that uh, program at least several times, sometimes more than once in a given year, I've started that year-long program, and usually by January uh, 15th, I'm already three weeks behind, and I started on January 1st. But these are the passages you skip in order to, to, catch up, uh, to, to catch up a little bit, right? You don't need to know who begat who and these stories of Enoch and Cain and Abel and all these other folks. So you, you fast forward to the good stuff. You fast forward to the familiar char characters. So what I want to do this morning is I want to go backwards and I want to not fast forward through some of these characters and I want to look again or maybe even look for the first time at what happens with Adam and Eve's offspring and the generations that follow from them. In what ways do the themes of conflict and transgression, creation and promise, which we encountered vividly last week in the garden with Adam and Eve, in what ways do those themes continue in the subsequent generations of humanity? How have the stories of the most ancient figures of the Old Testament been understood and maybe even a bit misunderstood down through the ages? These are some of the questions that we'll raise as we think more about Cain and Abel and the sons of Noah. Now, you know that my practice is, and we started this last week, you know that I like to begin with a pre-quiz or a little uh, evaluation process to test your knowledge of these figures before we get started. You know also that these are not really quizzes or tests. They are celebrations of learning that I hope displaces some of your text test anxiety. So we're going to start off really, really, really gentle. There's four questions, and they get increasingly more difficult. But the first one, we're going to kind of ease into it, and we're going to have multiple choice. Okay. So Cain, Cain, one of the sons of Adam and Eve, what was Cain's occupation? Shepherd, farmer, potter, or a Sunday school teacher? What was Cain's occupation? Any ideas here? I'm hearing some shepherd, and he votes for farmer. You're in the right wheelhouse, because Abel and Cain are shepherds and farmer, farmers. Now, the question is, which one is which? And this is going to become very important to our story in just a moment. But, but the punchline is, Cain, in fact, is the farmer. Genesis 4.2 uh, describes Cain as a tiller of the ground. And we'll see why that very fact about Cain's occupation might well uh, play a role in the drama that plays out in the conflict between these two 
first brothers. Now, I should say as a side note, though I haven't written this up and published it officially yet, that I think both Cain and Abel did some side teaching in Sunday school during these early ages. They, um, they always complained about attendance, but I think, look, there was only four people. Well, just let it go. It's all right. Not many people are going to come. Anyway, uh, second question. What was the name of Adam and Eve's third son? So you know the name of Adam and Eve's first two sons, right? Cain and Abel, that's the title of this course. But they're not done with Cain and Abel. In fact, there's a third son. What's the name of the third son? Let me give you some options. Adam Jr., Jesus, because you know in Sunday school the answer is always Jesus. Lamech or Seth? Seth. Seth. Very, very good. Seth. In fact, we, we read uh, in 425 uh, of, of the story that we, the text invites us to see Seth as something of a replacement for Abel. And of course, as we'll learn in a second, Abel is murdered by Cain. And so Seth is somewhat of a replacement. The text reads like this. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son named, and named him Seth, in Hebrew, Shate. For she said, God has appointed Shat for me another child instead of Abel, because Cain killed him. As we saw last week, there's all of these wonderful word plays in Hebrew uh, that are, not, are kind of masked by the English. But here, the son, Shate, was appointed Shat. So this is kind of the, again, it pictures Seth as a type of replacement to the murdered Abel. In biblical theology, Seth establishes the line of righteous pre-flood humans culminating with Noah in Genesis 6. We even encounter Seth in the New Testament. Seth appears in Luke's genealogy of Jesus. Because if you remember, Luke traces, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy, not just back through, through David, but all the way back through Adam. And so that line then in Luke's uh, theology leads back through Seth. So Seth becomes an important figure for later times. Okay, third question. How does Enoch, the son of Cain, so this would have been the grandson of Adam and Eve, the son of Cain, how does Enoch, the son of Cain, die? How does he die? Car crash, uh, a heart attack, how, how does, what, what happens to him? Now, you know I always plant one uh, trick question in my quizzes, so you know that I'm going to do that. And this is the trick question. How, do, how does he die? Old age? Well, the Bible is actually pretty mysterious on this point because, in fact, he might not have died. Listen to how the text tells the story. Genesis 5:24. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him. Now, of course, we might, we might well read this metaphorically, and when it says uh, he walked with God, that might be an idiom for death, or he was no more, God took him. We all might understand that as kind of a euphemism for he croaked, he passed away, for reasons that we don't know. But because the text doesn't actually say that he died, this has created wonderful space, particularly in the Jewish tradition, of speculating about what happened to Enoch. And not only in the Jewish tradition, but in Hebrews 11:5, we encounter this interpretation, the story of Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken so that he did not experience death. So the author of Hebrews reads this story and thinks, aha, Enoch didn't die. And he was not found because God had taken him. So somehow Enoch, in this view, was taken up bodily maybe, into heaven. Maybe it kind of reminds us of the story of Elijah. In the Jewish tradition, <clears throat> the phrase walk with God is understood differently. Some interpret it to mean that Enoch had interactions 
with angels in heaven. That is, Enoch didn't die. He gets raptured up into heaven, so to speak, and he walks with God. That is, he walks with God's heavenly messengers. And in fact, in the 4th century BCE book called First Enoch, this is, a, this is exactly the story that's told. Enoch is uh, walking around in heaven and getting messages from God, and then he goes back down to earth to deliver those messages. Non-biblical stories, but yet the, these sort of details capture the imagination of later readers of Scripture. Final question. Now, you're going to think that this, is the most, uh, that this is the easiest, but be careful. We're not going to treat Noah extensively. We're going to focus on Noah's sons. But here's a Noah question. How many of each animal does Noah bring on to the ark? Now, I'm going to give you multiple choice here. 2, 7, 14, or 40. Now, what's the answer here? So a lot of people for two. How do you know it's two? Because you know that song. The animals came on, they came on by twosies, twosies, elephants and kangaroosies, roosies. I'll save you the rest of the song. But it has to be twosies, twosies, because that rhymes with kangaroosies, roosies, right? So you know that it has to be two. This is an easy answer. It's got to be two. Well, in fact, Genesis 7, 8, and 9 says, Of clean animals, two by two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. Easy enough, let's move on. But the Bible, the biblical story of Noah, actually gives a second answer. It seems as if there are two flood accounts woven together there in the pages of Genesis 6 through 9. And in another text says, seems to give us a different picture. Check out Genesis 7 too. Take with you, this is God speaking to Noah, take with you seven pairs. That's not two by twosies. I don't know what rhymes with seven pairs, what sort of animals uh, rhymes with seven pairs, but it doesn't fit the song. Take with you seven, bear, seven pairs, bearsies, bearsies, something like that. Um, <laughs> take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate. So how many animals does God take onto the ark? 14. Not seven, although people often give that answer, but 14, seven pairs. Both are there in the story. So the question is, why? Why does the, the version of the flood story that we encounter in Scripture, why does one have 14 animals and one have two? Well, I'm glad you asked. One of the flood stories that we find it kind of interwoven together in Genesis 6 uh, through 9, one of the flood stories ends in this manner. It ends with Noah building an altar to the Lord, and he takes of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and he offers a burnt sacrifice to God because the flood had receded and the dry land had come up. Why is that a problem if the animals board the ark by twosies, twosies? He just killed the animals he brought on the ark. That kind of defeats the whole purpose. So in this version of the story, right, how many animals does Adam, uh, not Adam, sorry, Noah take onto the ark? 14. So he has some to spare for the offering. You need that wrinkle in the story to make sense of this later detail. All right, I'll let you grade yourself, and you can email me your grades later today, and I'll record them in the grade book for this class. Um, now, let's turn to some of the details of the story. Like last week, I'll, go, I'll read selectively going episode by ex episode, uh, touching upon what I think are some of the highlights of the story of Cain, Abel, and the sons of Noah. Okay. So as we move from Genesis 3 to 4, we move from a story about a vertical crisis, that is a crisis between God and humanity, to a horizontal crisis. 
that is a crisis between two people, and namely two brothers. If you have a brother or a sibling, I'm sure that it is impossible to imagine such conflict ever entering into the realm of daily life. But here it is in scripture, a sibling rivalry. Here's the basic contour of the story. Cain is the first son of Adam and Eve, and as we saw already, he was, uh, is said to be a tiller of the ground or a farmer. The younger son, Abel, is said to be a keeper of the sheep, that is, a shepherd. Uh, and his name is suggestive, though, of where this story is headed. Uh, Abel in Hebrew is hevel, and hevel is that same word that we encounter in the book of Ecclesiastes that gets translated as vanity or breath. Or, or something that's about to dissolve into the midst. So we already know a Hebrew reader would have thought, hmm, that's an odd name for someone. He might disappear quite quickly, much like the mist. And sure enough, conflict quickly emerges. The text tells us, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. That seems all well and good, but it seems that God did not look upon both of these offerings in the same manner. For the text continues and says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So God seems to treat these two different offerings very differently. One seems acceptable and the other not acceptable. And here two questions emerge. First, uh, how does Cain... Uh, because as the story goes on, sorry, I should add this, this, this little detail. As the story goes on, Cain becomes aware of the fact that God had regard for Abel's sacrifice and not his. And so the first question we ask is, well, how did Cain know that God had regard for Abel's sacrifice and not his? Did God whisper it to him? Did someone tell him? There weren't many people around to tell him this sort of thing. The text doesn't tell us how this happened, but in the artistic tradition that interprets this story, uh, there came about this way of representing God's favor. And if you see here, this is Abel here. This is God, those little fingers up there, it's connected to God. Here's Abel's uh, sheep sacrifice. And what do you see coming down out of heaven? It's actually hard to tell what it is, but it's probably some sort of fire. So there's this tradition that develops an interpretation that we know that God was, was pleased with Abel because some fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering, whereas that didn't happen with Cain's uh, agricultural offering. Now, again, that, that detail's not in the story, but that's how the story has been interpreted down through the years. So that's the one question. How did Cain know God favored Abel's offering? But the second question is probably the more nagging one. Why? Why did God favor Abel's offering more than Cain's. And so here we're going to do our first TAPS exercise of the series. If you've done uh, classes with me before, you know that TAPS stands for Talking Aloud Partner Sharing. So for the next minute or two, you're going to turn to a partner. Talking will be allowed during this uh, one to two minutes. It's allowed at other times too, but for sake of argument, for the sake of the acronym, it's allowed at this moment. And here's what I just want to get your take. Why was Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's? Why was it? Because this whole story is going to hinge on the fact that Abel's sacrifice was better. So turn with a partner. Uh, if you're sitting next to a spouse, I'll let you negotiate if you want to turn to that spouse or turn to someone else.
What's that? <laughs> That's right. People, I've had students ask that many times because it doesn't name. It's like, well, there was a third son. Where did the women come from? The Bible seems completely unconcerned with that detail. And so the assumption is that Adam and Eve had many, 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 many other kids. It's just that Seth is the third named kid. And according to the Genesis genealogies, these folks live hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's conceivable that, you know, Cain got married, presumably, to his sister 400 years later or something like that. But, the, but it's not concerned with it. It just thinks like, yeah, well, Cain got married. Of course he did. Uh, I think probably not, yeah, in, in some of these regards, yeah. <laughs> Who married him? <laughs> yeah, they must have had an ordained minister in the family somewhere along the line. <laughs> yeah. Okay, friends, let's come back together. I would love to hear some of your answers. I would love to hear some of your answers about why Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's. So, Walter, we'll start with you. Ah, it was a blood sacrifice. That is, remember, Abel sacrificed something from his job, that is the sheep, while Cain sacrificed something from uh, his job, and that was agriculture. So there's this idea, in fact, that's the, that's the first option up there. Blood sacrifice was assumed to be better than agricultural sacrifice. Why? Presumably because it was more costly. It, it took more effort and energy and finances to offer a sheep than it would be to a, a sheaf of, uh, of wheat or something like that. So that's one possibility. Now, I should note that the reason this is somewhat of a trick question is that the text never tells us. That's why this story is so confounding. It doesn't say, well, here's why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. We don't get that detail, so we are left to wonder. So that's one option. What's another option? Rush. It's a firstling. Ah. So it is the very first as opposed to a generic bunch of grapes. That's great. Great reading of the story. So remember there's that detail where Abel offers the firstling or the, the, the choice or the first fruits, it would be another way to translate it, of the crop. So Abel gives the best of what he had, and, and Cain just took, took what he had and, and gave whatever. He, he, didn't, he didn't choose the firstling or the choice of it. So maybe it's not about blood, but maybe it's about priority or something like that. Good. What about other options? Anyone else? They're the, they're the main two that are typically named. God wasn't a vegetarian. <laughs> so God was not a vegetarian. God was on the Atkins diet, and really he had to cut out the extra carbs. He was on the no gluten option, and he just couldn't take the wheat. That, that is a compelling option. Uh, I don't know if it's true, but I, I like how it plays. Um, yes, please. What I, what offering made, it may have been a matter of what was in the heart. Yes. Maybe the one offering was offered in love. Absolutely. Adoration. Absolutely. Service. And the other one was offered out of grudging duty. Great. So the, the great answer here, the suggestion is that it wasn't about what was offered, but it was about the attitude of those giving it. Was one out of, it was, was maybe Cain's offered out of begrudgingly, out of duty, and, and Abel's was offered in gratitude and freely. This is an idea. Um, and in fact, uh, this is Calvin's reading of the story. Calvin uh, accuses Cain. Where's my quote? Uh, Calvin accuses Cain of being a hypocrite and overly legalistic in his offering, whereas he thought of Abel as freely giving his offering. Fascinating uh, interpretation. That would resonate with us theologically, but again, 
the text itself doesn't say this. The text makes no comment about Cain and Abel's attitude in making the offering. So we're left to, to fill in these blanks. All of these are good, and we might add more to this list, but I want to add a fourth possibility that I actually find have a, that has a little more explanatory value in light of the context of the story, and it's this. Uh, in the ancient Near East, there was something known as the law of primogeniture, and this was the idea of a privileging of the first son. So if you had an inheritance and had to pass that inheritance down, it didn't get spread out evenly to all of your kids, or not even evenly to all of your sons, the inheritance went to the first son. The first son had a, a kind of a, a priority uh, within the family structure. And this was the rule of the land. This was how things were, were accepted and expected to be in the ancient Near East. But one of the striking figures of the book of Genesis, and we're going to see this as we go through this series, one of the striking features of these stories is it how it complicates or even overturns this idea that the first son is the son of priority. Think of all of these stories, right, uh, of, of Jacob over Esau. Uh, uh, there's, or sorry, but right before that, um, uh, Isaac over Ishmael. Isaac's the second son, gets favored over Ishmael the first. Jacob the second, or at least the second of the twins to come out, gets favored over Esau. Joseph, the youngest of the sons, gets favored over all of his brothers. So see, it, what seems to happen in Genesis is that we have this this theology of the underdog. The idea is that God is going to choose the unexpected son, the unexpected person, the, the person that society thinks is going to succeed by the, by the rules of culture and society, don't. And God chooses the younger, the lesser expected. And of course, in this story, who is Abel? Abel's the younger son. Now, of course, things don't work out for him because of what happens next, but still God has a priority for Abel's offering, and it's because of his birth order and not because of either the attitude of his heart or the content of his offering. Let me pause here to see if there's any uh, questions around this topic. Walter. But God just liked him better. I mean, well, like, like David, you know? That's right. There seems to be a certain arbitrary nature to this decision, and that's what's so hard about this story. Um, I, I think, the, in my view, it is arbitrary, but I think the arbitrariness can be explained by this idea of the favoring of the second. Because even David, that's a similar thing falls into place, where David is the seventh uh, of the sons, and he gets favored in that regard. Bernard? I, uh, my uh, particular point of view would be one that is theological. Uh-huh. That in, overall, in God's plan for the whole world, that he would uh, be acceptable to a fleshly, someone who had flesh, and therefore, you know, someone uh, who, who could live and, and, and that, that would be close to the, the, the blood sacrifice. Yes. The whole idea yes. would be that someone who was the ultimate supreme sacrifice, namely Jesus, yeah. in the overall plan. Now, it, it, we, we can't think in terms of, you and I don't think in terms of fairness or, you know, equality and so forth, but we, uh, can we, let me ask you a question, can we equate our thinking to God's thinking? It's his plan, so he can do what he wants to with his plan. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of a, both, it, that kind of nicely melds together the very first response about the fact that it was blood, and that's what made it more valuable, and the final observation that there's a level of arbitrariness to this. There's, there's a level, at least there's some degree to which this decision does not make sense. Or at least we don't have an adequate explanation for it. 
in, in, the, in, uh, in the biblical text. So that leaves us, it leaves kind of God's uh, purposes here a bit inscrutable. And so that would fit Bernard with what you're saying. So I think that's a, I mean, many of these stories, one of the, the themes of this whole summer series is that there are a lot of gaps in these stories. It does not, I want the longer version of Genesis. I want the, like the, the 500 page version of Genesis, the Tolstoy version, where you just know everything, but what they were thinking, why they were thinking it, what were their inner thoughts, what notes did they pass back and forth. We don't get that. We get like the, the 30 page version of Genesis. So it, it, it's both kind of confusing and confounding, but it also has, uh, it invites imagination and readers throughout the ages, and this is really one of the main points of this series, is that readers throughout the ages have taken up imaginative readings as a way of faithfully engaging with, with the text. And some of the results we don't find persuasive, I think, but others are, are quite compelling in a number of ways. And we'll see how that gets played out as the story moves on. So let's then move forward to Cain's response and see what happens next. Someone understandably, Cain is angry that God looks more favorably on his brother's sacrifice than his, than his own, so he sulks. And, and, um, and, and God basically approaches him and says, why are you angry? Why are you sulking, Cain? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, and you, uh, but you must master it. This, this theme of kind of Cain sulking over the fact that God has favored someone else reminds me a lot of the end of the story of the book of Jonah, where we find Jonah sulking because God has favored someone he didn't think God should favor, namely the Ninevites. Well, here that pattern of, of sulking because God is really merciful and gracious is already established here in Cain. And, and this imagery is striking. Uh, when God describes sin as lurking at the door, its desire is for you, but you must master it. Here sin is this like creature, this, this tiger or lion, this, this ferocious thing that, that's seeking to get in. It's not just a choice, but it's something that actually, uh, in this text at least, uh, maybe we imagine it as attacking Cain in this case. Well, in either case, uh, Cain does not master it. For what happens next uh, is that uh, in the very next verse, we learn that Cain invites Abel out into the field, and there he kills him. Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Of course, now the field is a fitting place uh, for the, or a tragic place for the murder to happen. Because remember, uh, Cain was a farmer and it was from the field that his offerings, that he brought offerings and they were rejected. So maybe in Cain's mind, he thought, I'm going to bring this person back to my field. I'll show God what's not acceptable. It's not the offerings of my field, but it's what happens later to Abel in that field. Um, God then asks, God comes back on the scene and says uh, to Cain, where's your brother? Now, God knew what had happened, uh, but he asked him anyway. Um, and then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? Now, that should be a familiar line to some of you, even outside of Scripture. What is, it, what is Cain asking when he says, am I my brother's keeper? What does he mean to imply? Yes, that's not my responsibility. Something that surely all older brothers or sisters have said at one point about their younger siblings. Uh, am I, am I, was I left in charge? Am I getting paid for this? Is this my job to look after my younger brother? So, of course, um, Cain assumes the answer is no. I'm not my brother's keeper. But what's God's expectation? The answer, in fact, is yes. 
You are your brother's keeper. We all are the keepers of our brothers and sisters. Uh, so this is where Cain really gets things wrong uh, in many ways. And this is one of those Bible phrases that has worked its way into our everyday language, even in secular circles, without any reference or explicit reference to Scripture. The phrase has come to signify a commitment to humanitarian efforts, including issues of poverty, racial reconciliation, and so on and so forth. Uh, President Obama launched uh, an organization in, in 2014 called, of course, My Brother's Keeper, and it provides comprehensive and sustained interventions to improve life outcomes for boys and young men of color and empowers them with the resources and support to get and stay on a path to success. This is not a Christian organization. This is not an organization that teaches the Bible or so on and so forth, but it takes and appropriates this well-known biblical phrase and applies it to this broader humanitarian effort. Uh, and it strikes me, I should just say, that this is a relevant theme for the church today. Um, we might ask, what sort of ethic does this question, am I my, brother, my brother's keeper, imply? It implies, I think, caring about those who are often overlooked. Abel is the overlooked one in this story, at least from Cain's perspective. It implies justice uh, as being something that's actively done uh, and actively expressed, not just doing no harm. Cable, uh, Cain just thought, like, well, I, I didn't do anything. I'm not going to intervene. But God's expectation was that he would. And it also involves seeing a common humanity or a common relationship among one another, even those of us who are not, of course, biologically related. So I find it to be one of those, those little nuggets in the Old Testament that seems to deeply resonate with the gospel and what it has to say about our responsibilities. So let's move on then to the aftermath. We've got a little bit more to do here. What happens next? Well, Cain, like his father and mother, refuses to come clean with God in terms of what he did. And as was the case with the previous generation, God announces a curse. Here's the curse on Cain. God says, when you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So two parts of this curse. You're going to have toilsome labor, and you're going to be a wanderer. You're going to be a refugee. Does this sound familiar, particularly to anyone who was here last week? Does this curse sound familiar? It should sound a lot like the curse of Adam. God says at the end of Genesis 3, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So again, toilsome work. And then further, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden. So the curse of the father becomes the curse of the son. Both involves toilsome work and both involves being exiled or driven out from the land. Now I want to do one or actually two other little details of this story maybe one for sake of time, but there's a crucial line that comes next, and I find that it's a line that's very often misunderstood. The NRSV in Genesis 4.13 says this. This is Cain speaking. Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. So this is after God has cursed him. Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. What do you think Cain is saying by this? What does he mean? Any thoughts? Maybe life's not worth living, right? I can't take this anymore. This punishment you've inflicted on me, God, is too much. Right, he might be saying the punishment doesn't fit the crime. He might be saying, okay, yeah, 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 I made a mistake. A big one, apparently. But I made a mistake, but this is too much. Your punishment is, is undeserved. It, it, it's, no human could bear this sort of punishment. 
Um, and maybe if there's a little bit of accusation against God about this, that, that this is too much that God has given him. But there's another way to translate, and I actually think that this is a better translation, although you rarely see it in the English. Another way to translate from the Hebrew is this. My sin is too great to be forgiven. Now, you can see that there's some relationship, and they're not that far apart, but they're a little bit different. In Hebrew, the word that gets translated as punishment um, can also mean sin. In fact, it more commonly means sin, so that changes it. Right? It's like Cain here is not talking about his punishment, but he's talking about his sin. And then the really weird part is this, to be forgiven. What's happening here in the Hebrew is that the verb that typically means to bear can also mean to bear up or to bear away. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, this verb to bear is the most common metaphor for forgiveness, to bear up. You're asking God to bear up or bear off your sins. Um, so what translation is better? What translation is better? Well, almost every English translation out there, NRSV, KJV, ESV, NIV, NASB, even the message, does some variation on this theme. However, the ancient versions, the earliest translations of the Hebrew, including the Greek and the Syriac and Latin, get something much, much, much closer to this. So there's kind of precedent on both sides. Um, I think uh, that, that the context of the story strongly is suggestive of this latter uh, translation. Here's why. In the very next verse, what Cain fears is retribution. Cain fears uh, that, that he won't be forgiven. Cain fears what's going to happen to him because he hasn't been forgiven. And, and specifically, Cain fears that someone might find him and kill him. He's not complaining about a punishment in the rest of the story. His response strikes a note of desperation. My sin is too great to be forgiven. Therefore, I'm going to be left on my own and vulnerable to retaliation by other people. How does God intervene? How does this story end? What does God do? Does God just leave Cain out uh, in this state of desperation? God marks Cain. Now, this is one last curious detail of this story. The Lord says to Cain, not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. So despite Cain's sin, God is protecting Cain. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Now, some, some of my seminary students have sometimes asked, well, what sort of mark was this? Was this a tattoo? Is it okay that I get a tattoo? Is that the mark of Cain? Uh, is it some other visible sign, maybe like a Harry Potter type of lightning bolt thing on his head that people would see and think, oh, no, we can't touch that guy? Um, one rabbinic source says that, he, that he's marked by one of the letters of the Lord's name and that that is the warning to people not to touch him. Sadly, and I have to name this because there are these unfortunate streams in the history of Christianity, but sadly, in some branches of Christianity, the mark of Cain was interpreted as dark skin. And the racial, not uh, undertones, the racial overtones here are, are, are to me, disturbing uh, and, and very present. Uh, one, one example of this is that uh, when Utah was considering slavery, Brigham Young told the Utah Territorial Legislature that the curse of Cain required slavery. That is, he kind of rationalized slavery back to this story. Now, mind you, this story has nothing to do with slavery, has nothing to do with issues of race or ethnicity or anything like that. But this is one of those, those sad ways, in my own opinion, that the Bible gets um, appropriated 
to support ideologies and ideas that are actually, in the end, radically out of step with the overall theological message of Scripture. But we still, as a church, I think, need to be aware that these things happen. Um, in either case, uh, I think what's particularly problematic about in that interpretation is that the mark on Cain was not a curse. The mark on Cain was an expression of mercy. It's what protected Cain from being killed. Uh, the mark indicated that Cain should not be killed and that people should not take vengeance into their own hands. It is a mark of guilt in some ways. That is, it, it shows that Cain had, had sinned, but it's also a mark of grace. And, and I think we might think of ourselves as all bearing the mark of Cain insofar as despite our sin and shortcomings, we all have been marked as righteous in God's eyes despite our shortcomings. So I would like to think of the mark of Cain as actually something that we all bear, and that's good news. It's good news to know that we are protected and considered righteous despite all of our sins and failings in this life. Okay, we've got just a couple minutes left, and I want to... Um, Move on to, to one last consideration, and I, we might actually not get to Noah's sons, which is an interesting story. Well, actually, let, let me, we'll do a, a poll the audience. We can do one of two things. I can't do both because of time. We can have one word about Noah or one word about Noah's sons. Vote for a word about Noah. Okay, very, very little. Vote for a word about Noah's sons. A few more, a lot of abstaining votes. Uh, in brief, my word about Noah is that Noah comes across typically in, in children's Sunday school as like this really happy, like wonderful, like fatherly figure. He's this hero of the story. And this is the most controversial thing I'll say this morning. I think Noah's terrible. I, I actually read his character and I think, why didn't Noah intervene? Right? God says, build, the flood's coming. Noah says, okay. God says, build an ark. Noah builds an ark. God, Noah never does anything. Noah never, Noah never questions God. Noah never, Noah never tries to intercede on behalf of humanity. But elsewhere in Scripture, we have all of these great stories of Moses and Abraham interceding before God when destruction is about to happen. And what happens in each of those stories? God stands back. And what does Noah not do? Intercede. So he might be a good figure. We might paint him on the walls of our Sunday school classes. But I'm not so convinced that Noah had... Uh, the best interests of humanity in mind. But I'll, I'll go into that at another point. Let me say a word about the sons of Noah. It's a weird and fascinating story, and we'll end on this. After the flood, Noah has three sons. I was going to quiz you on this, but I thought it was a little bit too hard. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. One night, here's how the story goes. One night, Noah indulges in a bit too much wine that comes from his field. He was a, 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 a grower of grapes. And Noah falls asleep naked in his tent. It's a weird story. Well, what happens is Ham, one of the sons, comes into the tent and discovers that Noah is naked. And what he does is Ham goes back out of the tent. He goes, finds the other two brothers, Shem and Japheth. He tells them that their father was drunk and uh, naked and had fallen asleep in the tent. And then the other two brothers, well, actually all three of them, go back into the tent they cover Noah up, I guess as a way of covering his shame of being naked or exposed or something like that. And then uh, the two brothers walk out of the tent uh, backwards. They walk out of the tent backwards. Um, uh, yeah, that's how I was trying to think if I missed part of the story. They walk out backwards to cover up their father so that, so that they basically don't see his nakedness. Oh, sorry, they, that, that doesn't make sense. Sorry, I'm back with you all. 
they walk into the, they walk into the, because I was thinking if they walk out of the tent backwards, they're looking at Noah. The point is they walk into the tent backwards so they don't see Noah. Sorry, sorry, that was an obvious part of the story I messed up. So they walk in backwards so they don't see their father's nakedness. They cover him up and then they leave, not looking at him. Now, what happens in the story is that Noah wakes up, he figures out what has happened to him, and he's angry at his younger son, Ham. He's angry, and he says this. Noah said, cursed be Canaan. Now, Canaan, as I'll explain in a second, is actually Ham's son, so it's Noah's grandson. Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brother. So God is mad at Ham. Now, why? Another case, with the, I want the Tolstoy version because this version doesn't fully explain why. The text is sparse on details. Perhaps the idea is that for a son, Ham, to see his father drunk and naked and leave him that way was a failure of his filial duty. Or maybe Noah is unhappy that Ham went out and told his brothers that he was naked. And Noah's thinking, why didn't you just keep this to yourself? I'm embarrassed about this. Why did you spread the news? There's some thought, too, that there might even have been some sexual impropriety involved. Uh, the story doesn't say this, and that Noah awoke and knew that the son had done something to him. But again, the text doesn't say this. In either case, what's interesting is the punishment. Instead of cursing Ham, Noah or God punishes Ham's son, Canaan. Uh, Ham had four sons. Um, each of them was associated with a geographical region, Canaan, with the land of Canaan. One of his sons was Put, which is probably Libya. Another son was Mitzrayim, Egypt. And a final son was Cush, <laughs> Ethiopia. Now, why focus on Canaan? What's going on here? Most likely, this is a story that's told to justify later Israelite animosity with the Canaanites. If you've read the rest of the Old Testament, or at least parts of it, you know that Canaanites and Israelites are always in conflict. So maybe this story is told as a way of saying, here's the origins of that conflict, or here's why the Canaanites should be driven out of the land, because all the way back to this time, all the way back to the time of Noah, uh, there was a problem. Canaan, or at least his father, even back then, acted disrespectfully, and that's why these people are those people. That's why these people should be driven out, and that's why the Israelites should be justified over them. The story doesn't flesh all of that out, but that's one idea of kind of this being an, uh, a backstory to why the Canaanites are disfavored. There's more to say about all of this. We've skipped several characters in Genesis 4 through 10, but what we're going to do next week is we're going to pick up with the next major chapter of the story, and here we're going to be entering into more familiar ground as we turn to the interesting and often complicated characters of Abraham and Sarah. So I hope you'll join us next week. Thanks for being here this week, and we'll see you soon.